This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning, everybody. As Bruce was just mentioning, um, I want to say at the very beginning, uh, you know, welcome to anybody who's uh, new or relatively new to our community. I wonder if it's not putting you too much on the spot if anybody wants to raise their hand and say that they're new today or uh, new as of the last couple of weeks. Okay, great. I see a couple of hands. Well, welcome. So it's, uh, I was thinking in the last few days that it's, um, you know, it's been a while since we uh, gathered together in person. Um, I believe the Zen Center was shut down in, I think, uh, mid-March. And I think, you know, all of our lives are, you know, somewhat changed in this kind of wild and crazy time. And I think, you know, in some ways our practice has to change as well to, um, to adapt and, and support us. So um, maybe just at the beginning, I'm curious to hear if, you know, what people notice about how their practice or the form of their practice has changed. You know, what have you learned uh, about your own practice in having to uh, adjust to this new reality? Is there anybody that wants to, to share on that? Can I unmute? I mean, uh, share. Yes, please. Is that Mary? So, yes, uh, this is Mary uh, Shepherd. So, I've, I've been getting my settings right. Uh, apologies, to getting my position and all the screens right. That's the thing that's one thing that's new about the practice is um, thinking of sharing a space. And I sit pretty much every day uh, for no less than 30 minutes. And uh, I'm also a member of another Sangha and I've been sitting with them. But I notice that uh, one of the things is, is that it does give me an opportunity to sort of share uh, my space a little. Mm -hmm. And because for the most part, I um, live alone and I, you know, have guests, family and friends, whatever. But since the pandemic, of course, no guests. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the space and, and, and sharing sort of like with guests is something... Um, that is a, I think it's a little opportunity for us, uh, something to think about, you know, sharing our space and, um, and, and sharing uh, our habits a little bit. So it is reinforcing to know the, you know, community of folks who are all um, working on their practice 
and you know kind of a, a reminder of our joint goals and opportunity to settle in and somehow i i think the pandemic can reinforce your practice in a way that nothing else will interesting yeah because thanks. it's just you and you yeah <laughs> which is always kind of true in a way but it's it's more apparent in this moment yeah thank you mary um i i heard a lot in there and i think some of what i hear is is the kind of you know the drawbacks and the benefits of of having a different form in our life you know when we're in person there's a kind of intimacy of uh, of our bodily energy with other people you know and we're affected by that and often supported by that you know i think that's why we why we gather together in in the temple to sit together um and yet in this weird you know um video realm there's a different kind of intimacy you know we're sharing kind of our personal space as we gather together um, and so you, there's a kind of way that we get to know people in a different way yeah i'm <clears throat> wondering if anybody else would like to share and it doesn't have to be good or bad changes, but what kind of changes they notice in their practice in this environment? Tim? Yes. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is, and it's sort of, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a mixed thing. Um, like parts of me like it and parts of me don't. And, and I think that's, that there's a, the, account, the accountability slash support of being in the same space is very different. And what I mean specifically is that you can show up like right at the time it be, that, that, a, that a period of zazen begins or after the time the period of zazen begins. And if you need to get up and go away, you just turn off the video and nobody, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just the, the sense of walking past people if they're already there before you get there. Um, sitting next to people and the thing that, well, I shouldn't squirm or shift or scratch mm -hmm. because they're right there. You know, just that, that, as you said, the intimacy is so different when you're in the same space and it directly impacts the nature of the sitting I'm finding. And so it's more relaxed in a sense for me, like, oh, thank God, I don't have to run to get to, to the Zendo. But on the other hand, there's something lost at the same time when it's, it's, it feels like it's sort of like um, instead of talking on a, a phone that has a really good connection, it's more like the tin cans and string where, yeah, you can still, you know, there, there, you're, there's still a connection, but there's something muffling it. So it's just interesting to me that, Part of me is, is like, oh, it's more relaxed. And another part of me is, oh, but something's lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that rings true for, for me as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think, yeah. oh. I'm sorry, Pat, Pat and then Jose. Okay. I think for me, I think this shows 
something we've always believed in, and that is that anything can happen, because I don't think a year ago any of us would have imagined what we're going through now. And so it kind of, for me, it feels freeing for me, because if anything can happen, then I can be, I can be anything. I can be quite different than, than the way I usually am. And so, um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that aspect. I've also enjoyed Zoom. I actually do better on Zoom than I do in person, and I finally realized why. It's because, as many of you probably have noticed, I'm a little bit hard of hearing, and I have trouble hearing, but I don't have any trouble on Zoom. So that's, that's really nice. I like that. And another thing that's happened is that I'm pretty much an introvert, and a lot of times it would just be a, a soon be alone. But this has really made me really realize how precious it is, is, is talking to other people and having communication with other people. So I really, I hope that that lasts. Yeah. So. Yeah, thank you, Pat. All right. So what I find about uh, Zoom practice, particularly like our Zoom Saturday uh, programs, uh, one thing that's interesting is that people from other parts outside of Austin could join in, and we can also get uh, speakers from outside uh, uh, beaming in through Zoom. Uh, we had someone beaming in uh, from uh, a tablet beaming in all the way from Indonesia. Uh, so, uh, so I thought that was uh, a great benefit of Zoom. But then uh, on the flip side, uh, a very mechanical point, uh, when it's a regular Saturday program at the Zen Center, I take my phone, I silence it, I put it off in my backpack, I hide my backpack by the bathroom. And technology is gone for a long time, and so I can you know, just focus on on the Saturday program. But of course, here I can't avoid technology. Uh, you know, yeah. notifications sometimes keep popping in here on my screen, even though uh, you know I'm sitting or uh, you know talking here right now. Uh, and so, uh, the technology confers the, the the benefit of connection with others, but it also gives us the, the curse of constant connection with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. It is interesting. I, I feel like, you know, some of the local connections and the people I know in this area, I don't get to see as much. And there's a kind of loss there. And yet there's a kind of wider um, community of practitioners and people that it's, it's very easy to interact with around the world. I mean, to have uh, a month or two ago to have David Chadwick kind of beam in from um, Bali and kind of offer a Dharma talk to our Sangha, uh, it's kind of amazing. You know, um, my teacher, Paul Holler, has been offering a class on the Paramitas over six or seven weeks, and suddenly I have this opportunity to practice with my teacher, even though he doesn't live here, you know. And it can, be, it can become an, another sort of juggling act in terms of our time and effort have so many opportunities to, to, to be with other people around the world right now and yet, you know, still kind of stay in our life, in our immediate life um, right here. So today I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about what I'll call provisionally maybe devotional practice. A couple people in the last week or two have asked me a question that it was kind of hard to hear. I wasn't sure what the question was, but it was something like, um, where do I direct my practice? Or in a way, like, what do I place my practice on as a support? What, what kind of allows my practice? And 
I don't know in both cases whether it was intended, but it, to me, I heard in the background of the question, a kind of question about God, what I'll say called God or Buddha nature or the universe. You know, is there um, kind of something beyond my limited life that can hold and support my practice? Or is the focus internally? Like, is it returning home here to find support for my practice? And in um, Japanese, there's uh, these two terms. I think Suzuki Roshi used to talk about this, jiriki and tariki. And it was a kind of these terms were used to describe the differences in some of the, the Japanese um, forms of Buddhism. And in a kind of superficial way, we could say that jiriki is um, a kind of translation. So one translation of jiriki is one's own strength. Um, and these terms are dis descriptive of, um, you know, the, the path to awakening. How do we, how do we reach um, some profound shift in our life? Is it through our own effort or through the grace of, of something beyond us? So Jiriki would be, and this is more typically what um, Zen would fall under in Japan. So Zen was a kind of Jiriki form of practice, meaning, and again, this is a superficial understanding. I think it gets more complex than this, but you know, that we, sit down in zazen and we find a posture and we attune to what's kind of happening in this very body and mind um, in an in an open way and not a kind of um i don't know solipsistic you know intensity of just me but it is the focus is still here and kind of opening wider from here and tariki might be translated as other power. And so, um, you know, Pure Land Buddhism in Japan would be considered a, a sort of Tariki practice. Chanting Amitabha Buddha's name, you know, sort of prayer to um, the Buddhas beyond us to help us awaken. And I think, um, as is common, you know, we, we hear two terms that seem to represent poles. And our human tendency is to say, which one's correct? You know, um, or to dispute it or debate it, you know, uh, between schools of Buddhism. And I guess the thing I, I want to kind of offer today is what, what actually supports your practice? what helps you awaken so um and to follow that to be led by that kind of somehow intuitive knowing and to me that means there there doesn't need to be a choice it doesn't need to be oh i keep my attention here and this is the way i awaken or i i offer my um my gratitude or appreciation or devotion 
to something beyond myself as a way to kind of pull myself out of my limited experience of life. So in, in Not Always So, there's a Sugirishi talk called Just Enough Problems. He says, here in the Zendo, meditating for seven days, you have had many problems. And we don't have to do, we don't have to notice this just in Sashin, you know, in a single period of Zazen. Moments are difficult, you know, things come up in our body and mind and energy that feel um, challenging or edgy. Um, <clears throat> he says, you may think you have more problems while sitting than when you have in your daily life. Actually, you are finding the problems you have had all along, but didn't notice because you were fooled by something. When you are not aware of your problems, they will appear unexpectedly. No problem will appear that you did not already originally have, but because you overlook it, you do not expect it. So it is better to see your problems as soon as possible. So this is the part that, um, that really touched me early in practice in the feeling of being kind of lost in my own mind in Zazen and feeling alone in that sense. And Suzuki Roshi encouraged, he says, Soto students sit Zazen facing the wall. Buddha is there behind you and you are trusting him. So it's typical in a um, Soto Zen Zendo that um, the altar is in the, kind of in the middle of the room, which it is in, at Tassajara in the city center. Um, here in Austin, it's, it's at one end of the room. Um, and often in Soto Zen, it's actually Manjushri that's on the altar, but, but here we have Buddha on our altar in the Zendo partly because it's also a Buddha hall. We, we use it for both purposes, both sitting and chanting. Um, but when we sit and face the wall, there's a kind of, um, I guess, a lack of distraction. And we're, we're kind of confronted with maybe these problems that we've had all along. And it can feel shocking to see them and feel them, experience them because we've found some way of avoiding them for so long. But in that feeling of rawness of, um, you know, feeling at the edge of our capabilities to stay present, maybe we can sense that behind us, um, just the figure of a Buddha is of looking out for us is surveying the room and taking care and protecting us so suzuki roshi says um, buddha is there behind you and you are trusting him if you trust completely there is no need to face buddha this is an attitude of complete trust so you're not kind of doubting that buddha has your back because you allow your back to open to the room, you really trust that, that Buddha is there uh, protecting. He says, your enemies or problems will come from the back, not from the front. 
in a way, this is because we avoid them, because we distract ourselves away from our problems. You know, the way they find to remind us is to come in through the back or the side door, particularly when we become quiet and still. He says, your enemies or problems will come from the back, not from the front. So to expose your back to Buddha means to express complete trust in the Buddha. So when somebody recently was asking me about devotional practice, a kind of practicing this kind of trust, you know, in Zen, there's many ways to do this. Um, you know, many of us have home altars. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of photo essay on our website of, of various Sangha members' home altars. Um, and we can take care of our own altar space as a devotional practice. Um, we can offer incense at our own home altar as a devotional practice. We can chant, you know, when we're together in the Zendo or even on Zoom, you know, we can chant with our kind of full being as a, a devotional practice. And I think very quickly our mind goes to like devoted to what, you know, um, devotion towards what? And it, just sort of has occurred to me in the last week or two, um, and I hesitate to say this, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but it almost doesn't matter. The act of devotion, I think, is the stress in Zen practice. The act of being as fully present as we can be and open to what we find when we do that. Um, is it Buddha, you know, that meets us in that moment? Is it Amitabha? Is it our own Buddha, Buddha nature, you know, some aspect of ourself that is leading us? I would say yes. <laughs> um, yes, whatever um, nourishes your practice, yes. So um, last week, Mako was, um, in her talk, was talking about Buddha nature. And um, I believe it was Rich in the talk um, brought up that, um, I think he mentioned Shohaku Okamura, but, but that Dogen in his fascicle, Busho, or Buddha nature, made what was at, a, at, at the time a kind of revolutionary um, translation of, of the Pali uh, canon of Buddha's words. And he translated um, what most translators had translated as all beings have Buddha nature, meaning somehow we carry with us um, some aspect of a deeper connection to everything. You know, maybe Buddha nature is a kind of matrix of connection. Um, <clears throat> but Dogen um, sort of took the liberty of, uh, so this is from Tanahashi, um, 
Kazuaki Tanahashi's translation of Gusho, he says the very first line of Buddha Nature says, Shakyamuni Buddha said, living beings all are Buddha Nature. They are Buddha Nature, which is a, 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 maybe a slight change, but a big change in meaning from they have Buddha Nature to they are Buddha Nature. Uh, the Tathagata is continuously abiding and not subject to change. So I think this um, living beings are Buddha nature speaks to this um, interface between Jiriki and Tariki, between enlightenment comes from my own offering to the world, or the world is offering enlightenment through me. Um, that I'm putting my trust in the Buddha sitting behind me. Or I'm putting trust in my own breath, in my own um, vibrating, moving, living beingness. We can be devoted to just that. But I think um, maybe they aren't two different things. So maybe we can step beyond this very human tendency to say, is it this or is it that? Is this right or is that right? <clears throat> so of all the Zen teachers that I know, um, Katagiri Roshi um, really expresses this um, kind of Tariki side of Soto Zen, that even within Soto Zen, which is the, the, the Jiriki school in a way, the, the self-awakening uh, school. But Katagiri has this, um, Katagiri Roshi has this sensibility of Tariki as well and this beautiful kind of merging of both. So um, Katagiri Roshi says, and this is from uh, Returning to Silence. He says, recently I have read articles in psychology magazines that clearly emphasize that Buddha, Buddhism is gradually coming into the United States, not as a religion, but as psychology. If Buddhism is accepted as psychology, it will never be rooted in American life. Temporarily, we can feel some satisfaction, some interest in it, but Buddhism will never penetrate American life. Sooner or later, when the times change, it will disappear. For a certain period of time, psychology and philosophy are fantastic but I don't know that they give perfect religious security. In a sense, Buddhism as a, a psychology is still part of human culture, influencing, but not exactly penetrating American life. In order to penetrate American life, Buddhism must be accepted as a religion, and Zazen must be practiced as an end in itself. Then it is really strong, even though we don't realize it, it really penetrates human life. So here's the sort of Tariki part. Katagiri Roshi says, 
most religions have the important practice of prayer. Without prayer, religion doesn't make much sense. Buddhism doesn't seem to have prayer, and this appears to be a big difference between it and other religions. In the 19th century, Western people didn't accept Buddhism as religion because it didn't seem to have prayer. It was not what was called revealed religion. Revealed religion emphasizes revelation from God or a higher source of being. Toward the end of the 19th century, several Western Buddhist scholars began to study Buddhism and gradually Western people have come to understand it and how it is different from other religions. Though Buddhism doesn't seem to have prayer, it does have jhana. Jhana means zazen, meditation. And jhana is exactly the same as prayer. Shakyamuni Buddha says, Dharma is a light you can depend on. The self is a light you can depend on. But this self is really the self based on the Dharma. Dharma is the ultimate nature of existence or holiness or of truth itself, or we might say Buddha nature. So Buddhism is not a revealed religion, but an awakened religion. It is awakening to the self or to the truth. That is the characteristic of Buddhism. So I'll just read a few more lines. He begins to compare um, jhana or, or zazen with, with prayer. He says, in Buddhism, however, this jhana or zazen, which is exactly identical with the practice of prayer, must not be some sort of means to an end. Even prayer in Christianity is not to pray to a divinity that exists apart from us. If we pray in that way, there is no religious security because the more we pray to God existing apart from us, the more God keeps silent. Real, real prayer is completely beyond whether God speaks to us or not, or whether we feel satisfactory or not. All we have to do is just pray. That prayer is just process itself. The process of prayer itself, that is all we have to do. This process or practice itself really manifests the source of our life or the ultimate nature of our existence. Within such a practice of prayer, there is no object to pray to or no subject who is doing the praying. This is real prayer. So I think this is the sense in which I mean that when we give ourselves to devotional practice, maybe it doesn't matter what we're devoted to exactly. That this process that Katagiri Roshi is speaking of is the enactment of our interconnectedness. And sometimes that feels like it's, it's innate, it's kind of coming from within us. And we're listening deeply to you know, some, some connection that comes through us that we trust, 
but sometimes that um, you know the the key to unlocking that process involves a kind of giving over a kind of acknowledgement of our limited perspective you know buddha buddha please help me i'm not sure how to do it myself so I really do feel like there's space in Zen practice for both, and maybe in the kind of path of our own awakening, there are times that, um, you know, we need to listen very deeply to what's coming through us. And sometimes we need to um, seek what feels like it might be um, apart from us. Or at least wider than us, broader, grander. And maybe through experimenting with both, we can realize that it's not necessary to make this distinction, to say that awakening is jiriki or tariki. So I guess I would like to. Um, maybe just pause there and see if there are, um, you know, thoughts or impressions or questions that come up in all of this. Tim. <clears throat> Tim. Yeah, David. Um, I take it all the way back to your initial question about how has this changed our practice? How has our isolation <clears throat> changed our practice? Yeah. The thing that has really, uh, I've really noticed is that my, my attention to my breathing has really changed. My sitting here in isolation versus in the Zendo. And it's, I don't know how to quite articulate it yet, um, but it makes, I, somehow I feel like I'm breathing for myself now. <laughs> I'm paying attention to my breathing. There, there is this perhaps isolated sense of paying attention to my breathing. Whereas in the Zendo, I was breathing as part of a community. Um, but what is, is really kind of striking me at this moment is how does that experience that I'm having relate to this idea of Jiri? Jiriki or Tariki. So when I'm home, is it really my own path? And there have been some great, um, I've had some great experiences in this new uh, sitting practice at home. Last week in the, during the Zazenkai, um, I feel like I experienced, I saw the delusion, if you will, of anxiety in my breathing for the first time, somehow. And I was able to let it go in, in a way that um, I haven't in, in the past. However, in the Zendo, I would be, I, I think I would be focusing in an entirely different aspect of my breathing. So certainly, if I were to do Zazenkai in the Zendo, I would have had other uh, experienced other things and maybe other maybe discoveries but um, 
So that, that's, that's kind of how I'm connecting this idea as how has our practice changed? How has my practice changed? And it is interesting to now think about it in this frame of, of Jiriki and Tariki. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm, you know, I'm, incur I'm encouraged because I, I have heard a number of people tell me recently that they have felt some kind of different settledness in this pandemic shutdown, that a kind of forced break from our, you know, never ending um, activity, um, you know, has this potential to um, allow us to settle into our experience. And maybe that's the experience of our own breathing. Um, and certainly there are, you know, new stresses of their own. And we are all kind of, um, I think, affected by the stress of so much kind of um, upheaval and unknown in our life right now. But I'm also, I am encouraged that I keep hearing some kind of um, turning inward that's possible um, because we're isolated. And I do find that in my own experience, you know, sometimes, you know, sitting in a Zendo is deeply supported. It's like you're kind of maybe in a session at some point, it feels like your whole body is, is, um, is being kind of lifted by the people around you. Like you almost become lighter through their, through their effort. Um, and yet I have, you know, my own um, introverted side that's uh, maybe a little on guard when I'm around other people, even in a quiet zendo, um, that some part of me doesn't as easily kind of drop into and, and fully acknowledge my own experience of my breath or my body because it's sort of, you know, gauging am i being watched you know am i disturbing other people um there's all these kind of social cues that that happen when we're with other people so anyway thank you for for sharing that david yeah pat oh i did when you were talking about uh zazen as prayer it it brought up this uh story for me that happened when I was teaching in prison. And I think I, as usual, I asked people what brought them to the meditation class. You know, why did they come? And this woman said, I thought a very remarkable thing. She said, I always have trouble uh, praying to her God, which I guess was a Christian God, I'm not sure. But she said, I always have trouble because I don't feel like I'm really communicating with him. And I thought that if I could learn to meditate, I could uh, really experience that connection so much stronger. And I, I thought that was touching. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Are there people that have, you know, um, I want to acknowledge maybe difficulty with the language of prayer or God or 
I think my own experience was that I didn't have much of a religious upbringing. So I didn't even kind of have some conception of prayer until I started sitting Zazen. But for others, I'm sure it's different. Mary, did you have something? Yeah, I I wanted to share something that just came up, which is I've been thinking about how you're talking, you're talking about Jiriki, Tariki, both is in both ways. It's the flip side of relational trust. And how such a, for for me, my struggles with trusting Mm. are are old. You know, Mm. they date back to what can I bring to my parents? Can they hold this with me and allow me to internalize the capacity to hold this? Mm -hmm. And and so I've been thinking about how there's this reworking of our relationship between ourselves and this other that's, that's beyond our parents, you know? And to the extent that I've, I was raised Catholic, I was touched by prayer and blessing. It was when I would bring to my father my distress and he would hold it and he would, he would bless me you could do the sign of the cross on my forehead. I didn't find it in church. I found it in this holding of the distress. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay. I see that. Yeah. There's a way in which when we sit, we're now doing that for ourselves internally. But we're also, as you said, the Buddha is there behind us. And there's, the, 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 there's, some, there's something about this tariki, jiriki, wholeness that's about this expanded way in which we then take our struggle to trust and rework it and in the now in a way that gets even beyond those initial templates of what we learned about relationship, but might have introduced us to where do we feel safe, where do we feel freedom, where do we feel seen, where do we feel connected to something larger than ourselves, even in the midst of distress. So anyway, I was just thinking about that polarity. Where does that begin? Where is our rooted experience in that? And it begins with that initial, those really early experiences, you know? And then how do we we not allow that to fix us, but maybe Allows, allow us to provide a portal maybe here and there, and then how do we expand? So anyway. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, and partly what I hear is like, as little children, we're, we actually have to kind of practice um, Tariki. You know, we rely on things outside of ourselves to to feed us and to keep us alive. So we have some understanding of what it might mean to acknowledge uh, the limits of our our power as people, um, and to um, by necessity trust other people or other beings or something beyond us. But what I find 
you know, fascinating about this kind of wheel of jiriki, tariki. Um, and it does feel like a kind of, um, you know, in Dave's announcement prior to the talk, he, he was sort of talking about giving and receiving and this in-breath and out-breath that um, with each in-breath, we're kind of going into some <clears throat> internal space and finding what's trustworthy there. And in breathing out, we're kind of expanding to some space around us and seeing what's trustworthy there. And so this kind of um, energetic process of attuning ourselves to what might be trustworthy. And I would say that it, you know, in my experience, you know, it's not that trust somehow survives uh, difficulty or suffering, but that um, our, you know, suffering or our difficulty, um, kind of thinking of Tsukiroshi's just enough problems again, is um, what might kind of awaken that trust. You know, if I reach the limitations of my ability to take care of myself and my life and I feel really lost, that might awaken some kind of opening to what can help me here? Might it feel actually nourishing to acknowledge my limits and um, to somehow appreciate or acknowledge the gifts that, I, that I'm given? whether that actually comes from outside of me or not, you know, it's at least being perceived that way. So I think devotion, you know, can, can be both. It can be a devotion to just this breath or a devotion to the Buddha who um, somehow I feel protected by or supported by or encouraged by. But I think our problems play some, some kind of crucial role here in this discovery. And whether, you know, you know, to have trust in this phrase of Suzuki Roshi, you know, just enough problems. You know, I can hear, I can read those words or even hear myself say them and there's a kind of mm, other <laughs> counter thought that's sort of like, doubts that, you know, doubts that there's some kind of attunement to just enough. Like sometimes it feels like way too much. Sometimes it feels like, well, maybe briefly there's a feeling of like, well, I don't have any problems, you know, but I think as a practice, whether it's objectively true or not in our life, it's, it's really beneficial to, to put on that hat and say, can I, assume that the problems I'm being given are just what I need to awaken, that the suffering or the difficulty that's in my life is just the right recipe to, to kind of unfold my, my being. 
And I want to add one last piece from that lecture. He, you know, Suzuki Roshi is encouraging us to try on this practice of kind of embracing our problems, embracing our difficulty as the nourishment we actually need on the spiritual path or the encouragement. He says, Suzuki Roshi says, even though you feel you have too many problems, when you trust in Buddha, you sit with your problems. At the same time, you should be ready to refuse a problem if it is too much. So he does give us some kind of um, discretion, you know, some kind of responsibility to, to not fall into uh, completely leaning on just enough problems, you know. If I have too much trust in just enough problems, then I'm not taking responsibility for this, this life, this body and mind. So he says, uh, at, the, at the same time, you should be ready to refuse a problem if it is too much. Buddha may say, if you really don't need it, I will accept it at any time. Give it back to me. So this is that trust in the Buddha that he hears Buddha kind of offering this. Um, but he continues, but more and more the problem you will change into something you need. Even the one you want to give back, that's too much. That that problem itself may transform into, transform into something you need. You will think, if I refuse this problem, I may regret it. Since I am not so sure whether this is a real problem or Buddha's help, maybe it is better to keep it. If you sit in this way, you will find that your problems are valuable treasures that are indispensable for you. So, you know, this is a perfect example of not always so, you know, as this kind of spiritual um, ideal, we say, I can accept the problems in my life as kind of the gift from the Buddha to help me awaken, but not always so. You know, maybe there's a time where I ask the Buddha, this is too much. Can you take back this piece? And maybe later in my, my own wisdom, I'll, I'll realize that I do need that problem. But for now, can you take it back? So yeah, jiriki, tariki, not always so. To allow our life to, um, to kind of paint all of these dichotomies without landing on one and saying, this is the way it has to be. So I think we'll go ahead and, and do the chant now, and then if there's another question or two, um, we could continue. <clears throat>